If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Germans tend to be um, seen as extremely clean and tidy people. But um, one generation ago, men and women only changed their underwear every two or three days. So that's not so long ago. So how have these changes come about? That was Frank Trentman talking to us about how consumerism has changed over the past 500 years. They saw in Confucius himself the example of someone who was putting his ideas into practice. He was basically a model of someone who was trying to cultivate himself to be a better human being. And that was Christine Grosslow speaking about one of the best-known Chinese philosophers. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of April 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Professor Frank Trentman, a historian based at Birkbeck University of London. Frank is the author of a new book entitled Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st, which shows how our patterns of consumption have changed over the centuries and in different parts of the world. He spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton. So for people who might not know, what's your book about and what prompted you to write it? Well, the book looks at the prehistory of the mountain of stuff that's become a natural part of our lifestyles. So what I wanted to do is explore why and how and from where uh, this mountain of stuff has been growing. Um, And I ended up tracing this history back to the 15th century when we see the first surge of possessions uh, entering people's homes, both in Renaissance Europe, but also in late Ming China, and then worked forward to try and understand the dynamics of that momentum and to identify the historical forces responsible for it. I should perhaps say a word on why um, this intrigued me and why I chose to write a history about it rather than just a contemporary debate. Um, And it seems to me that a lot of current concern, there is of course a lot of current concern about the sheer volume of consumption and the consequences of consumption on the environment, on people's well-being, on society and politics. But at the same time, this debate um, is very Uh, focused on the present, as if this is a phenomenon that really only got going after the Second World War in the era of high growth. 
And I think that's wrong, um, factually wrong, and also uh, politically and socially um, a little bit irresponsible, and that we need to get to grips with this much longer history. Why do you think we have previously overlooked the fact this story goes back so far? Um, the main reason, I think, is a very um, simple view that many people carry about history and the past, where we tend to think that today we are a society um, blessed or cursed by affluence, and that consequently people in the past must have been poor and lived miserable lives. So there's a very characteristic idea, um, popular um, not just in the social sciences, but also by many commentators, which contrasts our current society, where we have a lot of discretionary income, we can spend on uh, frivolities um, if we want, or luxuries, to compare that with earlier societies, which are marked to be um, traditional societies where people just are preoccupied with satisfying their needs. So putting food on the table and having a roof over the head. That's, of course, a very, very simple and naive view of history and the historical process. So in, in the late Middle Ages and early modern period, we already have um, not just very rich people, but also artisans spending on items that are not, strictly speaking, necessary. So, musical instruments, paintings, books, um, ornaments, fine um, tableware, comfortable bedding, and things like that. And um, so, traditional society is really a misnomer um, in the sense that we see the desire for material possessions much, much earlier. I think that's the, probably the main reason for um, commentators and people who think about these questions who haven't been exposed to history. There's a second reason, um, and that is closer to the historical profession, and British historians, in a way, have to uh, both uh, carry the blame but also deserve our recognition. 15, 20 years ago... Um, they turned to the 18th century and identified the 18th century as the so-called birth of a consumer society. And in that model, um, affluent society after the Second World War was a kind of continuation of this supposedly Anglo-American characteristic and Anglo-American talent for um, new uh, goods, so-called novelties and luxuries. And if you follow that mode of thinking, then, of course, the story of consumer society becomes the expansion or diffusion from um, a British heartland or center. And everything else just imports what's seen as an Anglo-American market-oriented model. Now, that's quite... Um, that proved a very attractive model initially, but the big flaw in it is, of course, that it delegates other cultures, um, both in Europe, but um, also in Asia or Latin America, to the role of bystanders and passive recipients. And that's quite uh, misleading. Um, late Ming China, um, but also West Africa um, in the 17th and 18th century had their own dynamic 
um, consumer culture, which was expanding. Um, are there any goods that you think uh, were particularly commonly traded that have been overlooked in other studies of this subject? Well, goods and services, we should always um, add. Services are quite important. I think, yes, absolutely. The um, initial interest, scholarly interest and public interest in consumption really focused on shopping. So, uh, in particular, the expansion of the department store in the late 19th century. Um, in that, from that perspective, the main interest was on items that are fairly glamorous, um, the so-called flaneur who enjoys walking about um, the department store and um, is uh, bewitched or seduced by the aesthetic overflow of um, lovely items on sale. Now, that is an important part of consumption, but let's not forget there is also underneath that layer a much more ordinary or even banal uh, set of consumer items and services that are just as important. And if you take an environmental point of view, even more important. So what do I mean here? I mean, uh, for example, the uh, urban infrastructures, which are literally lying materially underneath urban centers and department stores in the late 19th and early 20th century. So water, gas, and then soon also electricity. Those are absolutely vital, um, not just to enable people to get to department stores, be clean um, rather than smelly, um, be able to have access to mobility and transport, but also because they in themselves, water, gas and electricity, are very, very important aspects of consumption. So we have um, uh, wonderful um, pieces of data from New York City in the early 20th century, before the First World War, where people on the Upper West Side are already consuming several hundred liters of water every day a person. Now, that's consumption too, and I think that needs to be part of our, an account of consumer culture that's fit for our own concerns today. So it's really about placing current consumerism, of all things, back into a longer context that goes back much further and is more diverse. Is that correct? Uh, that's part um, of the aim of the book, to help people to understand where the uh, type of lifestyles and the material intensity of the lifestyles and their own identity as consumers comes from. Having said that, as a historian, it's equally important, I think, to be sensitive and attuned to different styles of consumption that existed in the past, which um, did not continue or which um, were seriously uh, modified. So it's not, you know, that everything in the past um, is a run-up uh, to the present and that people in the past try to um, please us <laughs> by helping us become the way that we are. There are equally important um, turning points um, where earlier styles of consumption become less important. Um, a, a typical example would, for instance, be um, uh, saving and credit, 
Now, credit goes back a long uh, time ago, but one interesting thing, for instance, is that saving cultures, so the idea that you should really put, a, put a, aside a penny for a rainy day, that remained very strong, including in many American states, uh, well into uh, the period after the Second World War. So when we talk today about um, um, excessive consumerist countries compared to more frugal uh, societies that save, some of these trends are very, very recent. And we only have to go back um, 30, 40, 50 years, and we see um, the same society, in this case, the United States, still having an equally important emphasis on saving. Are there any particular individual case studies or stories that stand out for you in the course of this whole big subject? Yes, um, there are quite a few, in fact. And um, one way in which I um, did the research um, on this book, which after all covers 600 years and travels around the globe, and I also try to execute um, in the process of writing, is to keep an eye out for what I thought were very, very tangible stories of people's lives or of developments in a particular city or country that capture um, larger problems or illustrate larger phenomena at work. And one of my favorite ones comes from um, Germany after the Second World War in, in 1952, where a, a young German woman, 19-year-old, uh, called Heidi Simon, uh, was the winner of a photo competition organized by the German Marshall Plan Ministry. And as many listeners uh, will, of course, be aware, German cities had been subjected to very serious bombing, including Frankfurt, um, where Heidi, uh, this young German girl, a young German woman lived, Heidi Simon. Um, there was homelessness and physical destruction. Um, the post-war years were still a time when hunger, famine, and public health concern really loomed large. So Heidi Simon enters this photo uh, competition, which was organized to celebrate the Marshall Plan and the reconstruction of Europe and to win over young Germans to ideas of peace and international harmony. And the entries or the themes for the entries of these uh, of this photo competition reflected very much the harsh reality of um, Germany after the Second World War. So the entry themes were uh, no more hunger or we want peace, no more war. And she um, is very lucky and wins the second prize, um, which was a, a Vespa moped, plus a um, cash prize. But instead of accepting it, she then writes back to the Marshall Ministry saying um, she's very pleased to be winning um, and she doesn't want to be misunderstood or be seen to be impertinent, to use her word, but really, wouldn't it be possible to have, instead of this... Um, uh, fully functional Vespa, the much more stylish Lambretta moped, um, which she has been longing for all this last year. It was much nicer, more exciting, more stylish, and couldn't, couldn't they see themselves um, uh, substituting the one for the more fashionable one she was really after? 
And when you see this correspondence in the archive, you think, Jesus, you know, what is this woman thinking? Um, she's, you know, she should be grateful um, for having any prize and a moped. And indeed, if, if at all, she should have asked to return the moped for some brick and mortar or perhaps um, uh, better food on the table, some meat and so forth. And the story is interesting because in um, the conventional way of thinking about why people consume, how people consume, um, we do still somehow carry this idea that um, people should be frugal, um, they should be focusing on their basic needs, so Heidi Simon shouldn't have asked at this moment in time for very fashionable consumer good. But of course she does, and it's very interesting, and it illustrates how deep-seated um, consumer aspirations and material desires were at this time, and how war or a world recession don't simply wipe them out. People carry them uh, with them, and so it, it, it's a good, I think, um, il illustration how European societies entered the post-war um, period already with very powerful material longings. You also explore in the book the ways in which consumerism can be used as a political tool, don't you? Yes, uh, that's very important. Um, in the public debate, uh, consumption is very quickly moralised and it's seen as illustrating the failings of character flaws of individuals. And hence, we have a lot of debate about people um, throwing themselves onto the sales tables, um, being brainwashed by advertisers, or just wanting luxuries and frivolous items. And that sort of moral debate, of course, has long, long roots that go back um, all the way to Plato and the ancients and reinforced by Christians. But in, in this view, the um, person pursuing uh, uh, possessions or going shopping tends to be seen as an individual who's only out to satisfy his or her material, personal material desires. And some of that, of course, goes on. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But equally important in the longer story is how consuming, at crucial moments in history, became connected to political and social collective aspirations, where consumers stepped onto the stage of history and said, look, because we're consumers, we actually have purchasing power. Let's put that to good use. Let's um, reward companies or um, goods and services that are um, uh, produced according to what we think are good social standards. And let's punish those manufacturers who are using child labor or sweatshops and so forth. And so we see boycotts as, a, um, as, as an instrument emerging, well, first in the late 18th and early 19th century in the fight against, against the slave trade, um, but then very, very prominently in the 1890s and uh, 1900s, before the First World War, as a social policy instrument where housewives and also often their husbands um, gathered in demonstrations and used white labels or black labels to promote um, socially responsible forms of production through um, the power 
they carried with them in their wallet. Um, you mentioned at the start the ways in which understanding this history is important for going forward into the future. How is this the case? Um, well, um, I think one way to look at history is an ongoing, very, very big ongoing laboratory in which all sorts of changes and dynamics have been tried. And for people who are concerned about the future, this offers us some insight on how change has come about. Now, often this change has been in the direction of unsustainable development rather than sustainable development. But nonetheless, it gives us um, some clues on how we might want to think about changing our currently unsustainable lifestyles in the future. So to take an example, um, material comfort and convenience. Now, we consume a lot of water um, and a lot of electricity um, at the moment and um, forget that the high standards we take to be natural, such as an indoor temperature of 20 or 21 degrees Celsius are fairly recent. We also forget that people in the past didn't um, automatically wash their underwear and their clothes after they've worn them once. Um, so one footnote um, here um, to people who have an interest in German history. Germans tend to be um, seen as extremely clean and tidy people. But um, one generation ago, men and women only change their underwear every two or three days. So that's not so long ago. So how have these changes come about? Well, if we go back um, in time, we can see it's not just um, about products or choice or people having more or less purchasing power. What we see is the coming together of different forces that um, push individuals and groups along to a different standard of living. And those include public health campaigns. So in the early 20th century in particular, an emphasis on um, greater, um, more intense personal hygiene, which helps to promote bathing and then later on showering. It also has to do with infrastructural changes, um, the transformation of the home by being connected to gas, water, and electricity is an enabling factor. And then finally, it has also to do with ideas of what comfort should be like. Should we all have the same comfort? Or would we be happy to acknowledge that different social groups may have different kinds of standards? Now, these changes don't just happen by themselves. They um, involve urban planners, um, they involve architects, they involve housewife um, movements, and, and um, a lot of um, social and economic policy. But what I'm trying to get at here is that when we think about the challenge, the environmental challenge we're facing right now, it's a little bit um, lazy to just assume um, we should focus on the individual and do a little bit of tweaking or nudging individuals um, onto a more sustainable path by slightly interfering with their choices. Consumption isn't just about choice. It also involves habits, and these habits have a social dimension. And so we should look a little bit more at the institutions and social movements, which did play a big role in the past to change consumer culture. There's no reason why they couldn't be involved also 
um, in changes in the future. What sort of institutions are you thinking of specifically, I suppose? Well, in um, to take one example um, from Japan, um, uh, bef- during the First World War in Japan, there emerged something called the Life Reform um, Movement, and um, that brought together architects, it brought together um, what would be uh, in in in, uh, in the British context um, the um, home department. Um, it also included neighborhood associations and housewives. And the goal of that movement was to radically transform how um, housewives and their husbands lived in their homes. So instead of cooking while kneeling over a highly polluting coal fire, kitchens should be raised to standing level. Um, Coal should go out. There should be um, um, gas, other forms of energy. And the living room arrangements should be organized around the nuclear family where husbands would um, be an integral part um, entertaining and helping um, the children rather than husbands just pursuing their old-fashioned um, pursuit of antiquities. Now, that is an example where um, the home was effectively redesigned according to a Western idea of what a middle-class lifestyle should look like. And if you look at housing design in Japan um, after the Second World War, all the way to the present, you can see that rooms have been redesigned and the division, the spatial division and the equipment of homes is very, very different from what it was like in 1900. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going back um, to cook with coal, um, but uh, one thing perhaps uh, to say is that there's no reason, I mean, historical reason, there's no historical reason to assume that in a country like Britain, we should all live according to the same standard. There's no reason to assume that um, uh, a change has to be just about a fancy technology like introducing heat pumps. Uh, one could also imaginatively think about um, lifestyle changes where people, for example, Um, dress slightly differently or use their homes and rooms slightly differently than they do currently when they have central heating. Um, In the past, this is how families lived. Different rooms had different functions. They were heated in different ways and they were spaces for different aspects of consumption. So there's a lot one can think about. One second example perhaps to raise is at the level of collective consumption. We when we have discussions about, well, what should we do with consumers, um, we very quickly end up imagining that all consumption is private and takes place in the market and involves individual choice. And of course, there's a lot of that. But let's not forget, um, in modern history, one thing that did happen is that organizations and institutions also became very, very important in shaping the way we live. So, um, company, company towns, uh, the introduction of, of canteens, for example, um, the tremendous expansion of municipal leisure, so public pools, public sports grounds, and we could go on. Those also have to do with consumption. 
And if we want to think about a more efficient and more sustainable way of using resources, well, collective organizing consumption more collectively, think of collective laundries, for example, might be one way forward. There's no um, social or technical reason why every household, every person in, in, in households which are single person households needs to have their own washing machine. Were, are there any other major ways in which you'd like this book to change readers' view of the stuff around them? Um, yes. Um, I'm not opposed to stuff as such. Um, I think stuff is very important. And um, one thing I certainly took away from working on this book and researching it is to appreciate how integral stuff, um, possessions, objects, and what we do with them is to human identity. So I think it's very important not to um, think that because we have too much stuff, we would become better humans if we just threw away all the stuff we have. A life without possessions, a life without objects, would be a rather miserable human existence. But that means we should perhaps, um, as, as a society, we should have an open discussion um, about how exactly we use the stuff we have, whether there are perhaps ways in which we can uh, um, increase um, the pleasure we have from the stuff we have, so um, perhaps have deeper pleasure from um, a more carefully chosen and used arsenal of possessions and objects rather than um, more superficial and haphazard satisfaction from a larger number of objects. So I think pleasure and how to um, socialize and teach new generations of children, teenagers, who will be the consumers of the future, to have a more conscious, reflective engagement with the material objects in their lives. I think that's, that's a, a big challenge. And at the moment, um, uh, we're doing very, very little to help um, the next generation to develop a ple pleasurable but at the same time reflective conscious engagement with things. That was Frank Trentman. Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to 21st is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. It is available in the US as well, published by Harper. Also on sale now is the May edition of BBC History magazine. Inside this month's issue we have articles on Thomas More, the Battle of Jutland, the Wars of the Roses and unusual historical underwear, among other things. You can get hold of our May issue now in all good news agents in the UK and in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be our March or April editions that are currently in the shops. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Half of all Western European people are descended from an unknown Bronze Age king who lived 4,000 years ago, a new study has claimed. It is not known who he was or where he lived, 
but researchers have concluded that the monarch fathered a group of nobles who then spread across Europe. Scientists believe the Bronze Age man was one of the earliest people to rule Europe in the Stone Age, the Telegraph reports. The findings were brought to light by the largest ever study of global genetic variation in the Y chromosome. Dr Chris Tyler-Smith from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute said, In Europe, there was huge population expansion in just a few generations. Genetics can't tell us why it happened, but we know that a tiny number of elite males were controlling reproduction and dominating the population. Half of the Western European population is descended from just one man. In other news, a 4,500-year-old female mummy has been unearthed by archaeologists in northern Peru. The remains of the woman, who is believed to have been between 40 and 50 years old when she died, were discovered in a grave in Aspero, the Caral civilization's ancient fishing town, Reuters reports. Inside the grave, archaeologists also found four carved bone brooches with bird and monkey motifs, along with a pot containing vegetable fragments and seeds, a shell-beaded necklace and a pendant. Archaeologists Ruth Shady, director of the Corral Archaeological Zone, said that the place and the way in which the mummified woman was buried indicated that she was of important social status. She told the Andina News Service, This find shows evidence of gender equality, that is, both women and men were able to play leading roles and attain high social status more than a thousand years ago. Meanwhile, pieces of intricate English medieval embroidery are to go on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum this autumn, it has been announced. Titled Opus Anglicanum, Masterpieces of English Medieval Embroidery, the exhibition is the first in more than half a century devoted to such embroidery work. Highlights include a pair of gold and silk slippers taken from the mummified feet of a bishop when his tomb was opened after 600 years, and loans from the Vatican that were commissioned by Pope Innocent IV after he coveted the regal garments being worn by English bishops. The secular pieces are particularly rare. Exhibition co-curator and textile expert Claire Brown was quoted in The Guardian as saying, 90% of what survives today comes from churches where pieces were often carefully stored, but the secular pieces were worn out or cut up. The exhibition's Latin title which means, quote, English work, is designed to show how England once dominated the field of embroidery. Our second interview this week is with Christine Gross-Lowe. Christine is a journalist and author who's co-written a new book with Professor Michael Puitt entitled The Path, which shows how ancient Chinese philosophers can provide a helpful guide for us today. The book is partly drawn from Professor Puitt's extremely popular classical Chinese philosophy course at Harvard University. Christine paid a visit to the UK a little while back, and I had a chance to meet her at the offices of the book's publisher, Penguin. The book is predominantly talking about Chinese philosophers, Mm -hmm. who a lot of them operated at quite a similar time, which is, some people Mm -hmm. know this as the axial age. Why do you think it was that this period saw such incredible flowering of philosophy that perhaps we've never seen since? Right, and that's interesting because the same flowering of philosophy occurred all throughout Eurasia, in Greece, in India, the Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, they're all, you know, roughly emerged at around the same time, even though they weren't in contact with one another, of course. And in all of these regions, in all these areas, it was a period when 
the aristocratic um, societies of the Bronze Age were breaking down. Societies were sort of crumbling. There was a feeling of cultural crisis. And um, so these different philosophers in these different areas were coming up with new ways to approach the question of how to live, how to be, um, how to change the world, really. And um, so, you know, of course, the focus of our book is on China, but similar big questions were arising in all of these areas throughout Eurasia at the same time. And you, you make the point that, that this this is happening in other places, for mm-hmm. example, the Buddha, for example, mm-hmm. Socrates. Mm-hmm. Do you think this, this is coincidental, or could their ideas have been spread as far as you know, India, potentially even the Mediterranean from China? I think that more than the ideas having diffused in that way, it's more that um, very there were a lot of societal changes that had spread. You know, we we know that certain technologies spread from one region to another. I mean, over the course of hundreds of years or even centuries, um, but. Since we know that technology has changed and spread and were imitated, we know that um, ways of life and societal structures were also um, similar. To that extent, we can say that there was a linkage. No one, as far as I know, has said that there there was a link, that the philosophical ideas spread when they were at the period that we are writing about when they were coming out. But it's not surprising that such similar ideas were arising because everyone in all these areas was dealing, they were all dealing with a feeling of cultural crisis that the world had really changed in a very radical way and to figure out how to, you know, how best to find a place for oneself. Especially it was a period of time when there was a feeling that you could change your status in life. You could rise or fall according to your own individual sort of um, you know, effort. And that was very different from what it felt like when you were living in a much more restricted aristocratic society. And the name that obviously springs to mind and who appears a lot in your book is Confucius. Mm -hmm. For for listeners who may not know that much about him, could you just give us a bit of an introduction to him? What kind of a man was he? Oh, Confucius was a teacher and he was part of a new class, um, a literary class, um, a scribe class, who through education could get jobs in government, in the bureaucracy. And so this was a new sort of phenomenon. Education took on a, a very new sort of role. And um, But he was, at the same time, it's important to know about Confucius that he was not particularly successful in, in government. And he turned instead to teaching a new you know, generation of disciples who would come after him in hopes that they would be able to cultivate themselves and create better worlds around them. And why do you think his teachings resonated so much with the people around him? So the Analects, which is what we primarily concentrate on in our book, that's actually not written by Confucius himself, but by his disciples. It's a, um, it's a you know, series of chapters of aphorisms and stories and um, things that are, were attributed to him. And I think that they resonated because they saw in Confucius himself the example of someone who was putting his ideas into practice. He was basically the epitome of a model of someone who was trying to cultivate himself to be a better human being. And so, you know, some of the examples in the Analects are exceedingly mundane. You know, they they don't seem like philosophy to us at first glance because that's how we're not used to thinking of philosophy as concentrating on such mundane aspects of everyday life, but the premise behind that was that 
real change happens in the world from the very, very mundane things that we do every day. Do you think there's a danger that Confucius overshadows some other Chinese philosophers? I mean, there's, there's a number that appear in your book who, who I hadn't heard of before, right. whose teachings seem to be you know, just as powerful as some of Confucius's are. Confucius's ideas have become so predominant throughout East Asia, and really, in many ways, they are the ideas that most people in that part of the world are um, familiar with in comparison to the other philosophers. I definitely hope that our book does readers a service of bringing some of these other philosophers to light because their ideas are also very influential and have been very influential in East Asia. And so for anyone wanting to know about Asian civilization or, you know, philosophy, I think that they absolutely are are, um, crucial for us to understand. And you talk about some um, great Chinese philosophical ideas and you show some interesting historical examples of where people some great leaders of the past have used them almost without, probably without realising it. Mm-hmm. So you talk about some of the American presidents mm-hmm. um, having mm-hmm. used, um, mm-hmm. I think, was it the way? The Laozian idea yeah. of generating a world that feels so natural that you don't know. And yeah, I think, no um, and the Russian uh, Tsar mm-hmm. Alexander the first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to think the people in the West, even though they don't necessarily know these ideas, mm-hmm. they've they kind of almost stumbled upon them because mm-hmm. they had that right kind of intellect. Does, right. that, does that make right. sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I think... Um, It's true. I mean, again, I think one of the things that we emphasize is that these aren't inherently Chinese ideas. They're human ideas. And they are, in some ways, very... They make a lot of sense. When we have the example of the presidents, we talk about um, FDR, for instance, or um, Lincoln or Ronald Reagan, and how they were able to create a world that felt so natural that um, the people around them didn't realize that such a world was being generated by them. That's a very... Laozian sort of concept. Laozi actually, he's, he is a philosopher whose work is also known as the Tao Te Ching. Um, so I think a lot of Western readers, Western listeners may be more familiar with that title. But this is in many ways about um, the fundamental idea of power coming not through strength, but through weakness, seeming weakness, really. And that basically comes from the idea of understanding the underpinnings of everything, how well everything is connected, and it's when you understand that that you can really wield great influence and power. There's a very interesting example, I thought, um, with Ronald Reagan, and you said how he, he went from being quite a, maybe quite a formidable political operator to trying to become more charming, more of a man mm-hmm. of the people, to, mm-hmm. to show this, this kind of humility and weakness which mm-hmm. actually allowed him to be a man of great strength. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that that, and FDR used a similar sort of strategy, strategy may be too purposeful, but like he used a similar idea with his fireside chats. Um, Presenting themselves as a genial, grandfatherly-like figure is one way to sort of make a connection with the people that you're talking to, the citizens of the nation you're leading, rather than sort of try to overwhelm or overpower them. And in both cases, it was pretty successful. There was another philosophical idea that, that appears in the book, about how you have to create your own agency and you can't mm-hmm. just passively watch things happen. And, right. and, and there's an interesting example you gave about how Lincoln, in a way, changed the origins mm-hmm. of the United States, but mm-hmm. did it in such a way that people didn't notice he'd done that. When Lincoln made his Gettysburg Address, he implicitly referred to the Declaration of Independence as a founding document of America. Now, 
at that time, I mean, now today we don't even question that. I mean, school children learn about the Declaration of Independence, they memorize it, but at that time it really was a very explosive idea. But by bringing that into his speech in sort of such a natural way and alluding to the idea that all, all humans are created equal, he introduced a very new idea about the right of everyone to have um, equality that, that resonated, you know, resonated in the civil rights movement, has resonated up to the present day with debates over same-sex marriage, etc. The important thing to remember, though, is that this was simply not a natural idea at all, the way that we take it for granted to be, today to be. It was incredibly controversial and explosive. You talked about these, these Chinese philosophical ideas, how they have some of them been incorporated in countries outside of China. Were they actually practically applied within China? Did, say, the ruling class in China follow follow these philosophical ideas, or were they more something for intellectual people? Oh, no, I think that they were, they, they um, definitely were the underpinning of both the educational system and the government in a lot of East Asian um, societies. So they are sort of like Protestant ideas in the United States, for instance. It's just so widely dispersed throughout so many institutions in society that it's hardly even questioned. However, I will point out that the sort of Confucian ideas that are so prevalent in East Asia today are Neo-Confucianism, which is a, a later sort of version or reinterpretation of Confucian ideas. And um, we, in our book, we were really sticking with and talking about the ideas in their purest sense from over 2,000 years ago. And there's one aspect that I found quite interesting was the way the, the book said that China often was more of a meritocracy than other right. countries of people. Right. You, right. It was more on talent than mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than on wealth that would have got you into important right. positions. Well, so it's actually, it wouldn't even have been on talent, it would have been on hard work and effort, like how much you study. In fact, the last philosopher in the book, Shenzhou, was explicitly about not sort of assuming that anything is natural, um, but that everything can be worked on, including yourself and your own capabilities. So the exams, the exam system in China really was a measure of how hard you worked at studying to prepare for the exam. And then once you took the exam, it wasn't just sort of a rote multiple choice sort of thing. It really was about how, uh, it was about testing how well you can sense certain different ethical situations, but basically what, how good a human being you were at um, understanding that there's no sort of black and white set of rules that, or an ethical code of conduct that everyone must follow, but that life is complex and human relationships are complex and that the best bureaucrat is somebody who is able to sense all this and work with it in an effective way. Might this meritocratic society have been something to do with the fact that the early Chinese state was one of the most developed, most successful, that you talk about like the Tang dynasty Yes, I think in, in it, def- it definitely was um, a big reason why it was such a successful empire for so long. You talked also about European visitors going to China and being impressed with what mm-hmm. they saw, and that, and that might potentially have fed into the Enlightenment later on right, within right, Europe. Right, exactly. Some of these ideas, like the idea of the exam system, for instance, it became, you know, it's, it's an idea that translated over to the West. The important thing to remember about these ideas when they were brought over to the West is that they were sort of stripped of some of the more humanistic aspects of them, and it's a latter form of Chinese philosophy called legalism, which we didn't go into the book, um, but Michael actually does in his course. 
that is what made it over. And so right there already we see, I mean, a very interesting phenomenon where um, these really interesting and enticing ideas are brought over but distorted in a way, part of them. They're sort of stripped of their humanity. And that also sort of feeds into latter-day notions of what East Asia and China, the non-Western world, is like. Something else you mentioned was that the way Buddhism has been mistranslated in the mm-hmm. West as well. I mean, that was probably, I guess, in the 20th century, Buddhism mm-hmm. became really popular in mm-hmm. certain Western mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. But you don't believe they've actually understood Buddhism as it traditionally mm-hmm. was within, within East Asia. Right. Well, um, one of the most sort of salient differences is that Buddhism and mindfulness, which is very popular now, they really are about, there's a doctrine of no self. And yet in the West, it's often been appropriated in the service of the self, in the service of finding yourself. And our book, um, the message of our book is explicitly against the modern day mantra to find yourself and look within and be true to yourself. Because, you know, for these Chinese philosophers, that would have been the very opposite of what you need to do to become a you know, a, a human being who's growing and cultivating yourself and becoming a better person all the time. And, and do you think, in a way, the Buddhism that, that perhaps many of us might know in the West is really a product of Western culture in the post-war period rather than actually of India two, two and a half thousand years ago? I think it very much is. I think there's also a sort of dangerous tendency to romanticize a lot of aspects of non-Western cultures, and especially Buddhism has been... Um, exoticized and romanticized in a way as sort of, um, it's seen as the antidote of the the avaricious West. And that's not really seeing it as what it is or what as what it was. You know, of course we can adapt philosophies, but we have to know, I think, that we're doing that. We have to know what we're working with and not, you know, pass it off as something true to what the original ideas were. A major premise of your book is that ancient Chinese philosophy can be really helpful for our modern lives. Do you think that the, the things they were thinking about kind of transcended their own era? They, they were applicable? Absolutely. They time? were, they, absolutely. Because really, at a fundamental level, they were concerned with human relationships, and especially Confucius and Mencius and, um, you know, how human beings can live a good life in this world with other human beings around them. And that is an issue that transcends all time and all places and is very universal. Um, And what I think is really nice about it, especially in, you know, for us living today, is these ideas have been lost to history, but are absolutely worth looking at and bringing to life again. That was Christine Grosslow. The Path is out now in the UK, published by Viking. In the US, it's published by Simon & Schuster. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Sykes-Picot Agreement and a remarkable 17th century voyage. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>